Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. I'm excited to announce our upcoming schedule of Planet Microcap Showcases, our investor conferences showcasing the Microcap community. We will be hosting the Planet Microcap Showcase virtual on December 6th through 8, 2022, and we'll be back in Las Vegas for our in-person event on April 25th through 27, 2023. Attendance for both events are complimentary for investors. Expect to interact with microcap management teams, insightful keynotes and panels, plus network with your fellow microcap crew. Registration is now open for our virtual event on December 6th through 8, 2022. So to join us, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Dennis Jean-Jacques, founder of Ocean Park Investments and author of the book, Five Keys for Value Investing. Dennis has more than 20 years experience as a professional investor. And prior to founding Ocean Park Investments, he worked with legendary investors such as Peter Lynch and with the late Michael Price. Dennis extracted many lessons during those experiences and went on to write a book titled Five Keys for Value Investing. Dennis hasn't done a ton of podcasts, so I'm very excited for you to learn more from his experiences as well as his investing strategies at Ocean Park Investments. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 241 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Dennis Jean-Jacques. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSets. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is Dennis Jean-Jacques. He is the founder of Ocean Park Investments as well as a value investor. Dennis, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, great, and happy to be here. And thank you so much, Robert, for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I, I'm, I was really thankful that, you know, we somehow ca- we came across each other on, on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, once we got to talking, I, I just thought we we had to do a podcast interview together um, because, one, you haven't done a lot of shows. And, right. and I really want to give folks uh, a full scope of your background because you've worked with some investment legends, uh, many of whom you're everyone you're about to hear about now, and I'm excited to hear about his stories with them, um, as, as well as authored the book, uh, Five Keys for Value Investing. So I wanted to start up with your, your background. You know, you, as, as we, you know, prepared for this interview today, we talked a little offline, you grew up in Boston, you know, from your formative years, how did you get interested in investing? Yeah, sure. No. Um, so let me give you, a, you know, a little background and also, you know, how I got hooked onto investing. Um, as you mentioned, I grew up in Boston, and as back then in the early, you know, in the '80s and '90s, Boston was kind of like the money management town, so to speak. Um, I was an engineering student in college. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the first shares I owned. Uh, was a company called um, Digital Equipment Corporation, which I don't know if you're, some of your viewers, uh, the older viewers probably remember. It was run by a guy named Ken Olson. He was basically a very brilliant person back then. Uh, so back in the early 1990s, I used to use a lot of their, um, their products. Uh, there was a product called the Digital uh, Unix Operating System, which I was using as an engineering student. And during my sophomore year um, in college, I basically attended my first annual meeting uh, at Digital Equipment Corporation, I saw how ordinary, you know, investors, ordinary people would basically question management, challenge them on certain things, um, and they were owners of the business. And basically, that's how I got hooked to investing. Very cool. So then, you know, once you got hooked, did you know, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my career? I want to be in finance and investing in some way, shape, or form. And if yes, which clearly yes. Um, what, what was those next steps that you took to get you on that path to where you wanted to be? Yeah. So the first thing I did when I, um, I basically got intern at a company called Franklin Portfolio Associates. They were basically a quant shop in Boston. What they did was they, they wrote, uh, code and, um, they wrote the, the code in old languages like, um, uh, Fortran and, and things I sort. And um, so I would write code to basically pick stocks. Um, so I'd interned there one summer. And one of the um, uh, managers told me that I was actually really interested in the businesses themselves. So a lot of these um, quant managers, they don't really know what the stocks and the businesses do. Uh, what the, And so um, he thought that was the best place for me was a company right across the street um, called Fidelity. And um, and he thought that would probably be the best place I should go if I will learn more about businesses. Oh, so, okay. So you went to this little known shop that, you know, nobody on here has ever heard of before. Fidelity. All right. Let's Let's start. You know, how, how was your experience over there and what did you do there? And and yeah, just give us the whole thing. You know, what, what was that experience like? Yeah, you know, the working at Fidelity was was phenomenal. I think the experience there taught me as much about myself uh, 
as, as well as investing. You know, I had the opportunity to work with some amazing people at Fidelity, you know, Catherine Collins, uh, Peter Lynch, Jeff Vinnick, um, and other, uh, several other PMs like Jeff Albin, um, uh, who has done, uh, they have done so much great things going, you know, in their careers. But I also noticed very early on that, um, that there was not really one way to make money in the market. Each portfolio manager had their own styles that fit their personalities. Basically, every lesson um, was about um, uh, when I was there was about self-awareness, you know, to choose basically investment styles or to choose the kind of things that would basically fit my own personality. Um, and, and one of the, the key lessons I've learned early on is basically to choose the kind of style or choose the arena that basically fits the way you are wired as a person. Uh, you know, my natural temperament um, must match the, the way I plan to invest. You know, you know, looking back, you know, it takes a, uh, you know, it takes a lot of work to find out who you are as an investor. You know, the market is very, um, it's a very unforgiving place to try to find out who you are. And, you know, when volatility starts flying around everywhere, like it has been this, this year, um, that's not the, the time to really find out who you are. And, and, and you, at the core, you want to basically know, are you an investor or are you a speculator? Um, do you trust your data source? And what work did you really do? Um, uh, you know, the market could be a very testing place. And, I, and I, at Fidelity, um, I knew early on that I was not a daily trader um, and that certain investment styles fit my personality and my temperament. And I think that was the best, uh, the best lesson I learned when I was at Fidelity. Absolutely. Okay. So who taught you that? Was that Lynch or was that up in, up in, you know, who, I, I mean, while, while you were there, I mean, what kind of access did you have to some of these legends? I mean, would, were, did you, were you able to go to lunch with them and ask them as many questions as you could? I mean, what was, what was that like? Oh, absolutely. So the way it was set up is that I was in the uh, uh, kind of associate analyst um, kind of program where you would basically work on an idea or two, or maybe uh, three or four, you were given a certain industry. And all the portfolio managers, um, uh, you had access to all the portfolio managers. So basically, my job was really to pitch each manager on my ideas. So um, I would go to one person's office, and he or she may like a certain kind of company, maybe low PE, maybe fast growers, uh, maybe companies with a strong balance sheet. And another person, uh, portfolio manager, right next with the office right next door may like something totally different. Maybe they don't want companies that are not growing X, you know, X or, or Y. Um, so you had to really understand um, uh, the, the, the personality and the kind of style that each portfolio manager was operating under so you could be able to communicate your ideas properly to them. And that's when I realized that there are several different ways to manage money. There are several different ways to make money in the market and not one portfolio manager was like the other. In addition to that, we would have um, um, industry views where we would pitch, you know, we would cover a sub segment of an industry and we would have a meeting basically you know, talk to everyone about what we've learned. And around room, you'll have 30 managers around a table. And here you are pitching or talking about your, your ideas and different kinds of questions will be thrown at you. And you have to be ready to answer them. And depending on the styles that they have and the, the kind of things they're looking for, you have to be able to adjust and you have to be able to understand your companies well enough to communicate that to them. So um, that's one of the things I learned is really about that there are different types of investors, there are different types of ways to make money. And you just have to know uh, that 
that style has to be aligned with your temperament and also how you're wired. hundred percent. And I, we're going to get there because I, I want to learn more about, you know, your, what type of investor you are. Um, but I, I mean, look, I, we're going to continue on with the story time a little bit where I have to ask, I mean, in those pitch sessions, you know, what was the best feedback that you got from one of these legends when you were, you know, pitching a particular stock or pitching a particular industry? I mean, what, give us, give us a, give us a couple stories there. Cause I'm sure you've gotten some, 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 uh, just some feedback that you'll never forget. Well, I, I think, I think the best feedback is often when you don't get a feedback, to be honest with you. Um, you know, sometimes you would, um, you would, you would you'd talk about a company that you're, you're probably pretty excited about and you don't really get, you know, you know, uh, you, know uh, you don't really get a reaction one way or the other. And so you really have to understand why was I so excited about it and this particular manager who, you know, have X amount of experience in the markets didn't really see what I saw. And a lot of times it's really about how you communicate and how you present the, the companies and how do you present the opportunities. And this goes against to, to what I said earlier about really understanding how the particular manager or how the particular manager is wired and what they are looking for uh, uh, in, in a particular investment. So that was basically uh, the biggest um, lesson for me is really about how do I un- how do I understand a company well enough that I could talk about a company to three or four different type of investors and really get all three of them, all four of them really excited about it. And also while doing that, you're also making sure that you don't miss any um, uh, holes. For example, one manager may like really strong balance sheet and strong cash flows with a history of, of beating numbers. The other person may not care as much. They really like the companies to be really cheap and really cheaply priced. So, um, so if you could have four or five different managers really like your idea, it's it's a it's it's by and large probably going to be a pretty good idea because they look at the companies from different angles. Very good. All right, so. You know, obviously, at, at at the beginning, you know, I introduced you as a value investor. At one point or another, you're definitely going to come across Warren Buffett at, at at a certain point. So, for you, how and when did you finally come across Warren Buffett, and what kind of impact did he have on your career? Yeah, no. So, um, you know, it, it was almost like it, it was almost fate that I would run into Warren Buffett, and 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 running to him really kind of altered or changed uh, the trajectory of my career. You know, during the time when I was at uh, Fidelity, you know, back then there was no emails or anything of that nature. So I wrote a letter to a, another um, legendary investor called John Rogers at Ariel. At that time, I think t- Time Magazine had him at, um, on a list of like under 40 people to watch or something of that nature. So every time John would come to Boston, I would kind of have lunch with them, things of that nature. And he gave me the advice to read up on Warren Buffett. Um, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I, you know, I basically went, you know, all in, you know, I think for me, you know, Buffett's plain speak and temperament really resonated with me. Um, You know, I remember reading about how his office was much more like a library than a trading floor, um, that you wouldn't even know if the stock market was even open um, if you ever visited him at his office. And, you know, after Fidelity, I went off to Harvard Business School. And sure enough, during my first year, uh, at HBS, you know, Warren Buffett spoke to my class. Um, and an interesting, uh, uh, you know, interesting story. So, um, you know, during the class, I'll never forget, during the class, he posed a question 
that I will never forget and that really changed how I thought about stocks in the market and, and basically altered um, you know, the decision I would make uh, uh, about my career. You know, Buffett asked, you know, um, you know, basically what he asked is that he asked, why sh- would someone sell a perfectly good business generating lots of free cash flow? Why would he sell that business at a 30 or 40% discount? You know, then he said, well, perhaps, yeah, I don't know, perhaps this person uh, you know, must get out of the stock or maybe, maybe they may think that they're able to buy it back cheaper at a later date or a more convenient time. But then Buffer asked, you know, what if you, you buy those shares at that time and you don't sell the shares back to them? What if you just, you don't share it, sell it back? What if you hold on to these shares at a great price? What's, uh, you know, you hold, on, you hold on to it for months, years, or even decades. You know, that is the opportunity to buy good businesses at great prices. You know, sometimes, you know, as, as I learned more about Buffett, he talks about how, you know, you have to take advantage of market volatility and not become a victim of it. The market was not built for business buyers. They were basically built for traders. You know, the, the market was not built for value investors. Um, it was built for people who want to get in and out of stocks, in and out of stocks. Um, and every day, the market will poke at you to do something, to buy something or sell something or buy something or sell something. And during that time when he spoke to the class, I call it my rational awakening because that's when I started begin uh, looking a little bit deeper into value investing. So I think that's how, that's how um, Buffett really had an influence on, on the, the direction I would take. Wow, that's a really cool story. I, did you? I mean, I'm I'm assuming you've been to Omaha now at least once. Yes, as a matter. Of, yes, I have. As a matter of fact, um, uh, in 2000, when everyone was saying Buffett is done, this is during the uh, the internet bubble. Um, I actually got up and and, I, and and basically thanked him for visiting HBS that year. As, I, as a matter of fact, there's there's a YouTube uh, clip on it. Um, if you would Google it, uh, and I, I thank him for um, visiting. Um, HBS. And I told, I told him that story about how it was basically my rational awakening and that he was basically, um, he was very, he was pleased by that. So yes, I've, I've been to several um, Buffett meetings um, and, uh, and look forward to more to come now that COVID is over. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I got to get out there one, one of these years for sure. Oh, you got to do it. You got to do it. You know, I'm not know. making predictions, but you should do it sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you just turned 92, you know, yeah. the, 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 yeah, but yeah, we're in the we're in the back nine. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, okay. So clearly, you're you're a value investor. Value investing is in your blood. That's what you love. That is core to who you are as an investor. So you actually ended up writing a book about this and uh, titled Five Keys for Value Investing," which is still available wherever books are sold. And you know, for you, what what was the main idea of the book? You know, why why did you want to write this? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so. Um, you know, it's interesting because I basically wanted something that I could use. I, you know, um, when I was in business, you know, business schools, they, they're really big on frameworks, right? Everything's a framework, you know, everything's a two by two framework. And um, I didn't really see a framework that's like, you know, like, that's like a graph of things on nature about value investing. So I really, I really want to create something that I can use going forward that was born from investors that I really, really respected. 
So it really started as a, as a faculty-sponsored research paper during my second year at Harvard Business School. I basically, what I did was I re-engineered several investments made by managers that I highly respected. You know, I looked at investment made by Warren Buffett, Richard Rainwater, Michael Price, Seth Klarman as well. Um, and I remember, you know, some investments, I remember looking at, you know, Sanborn Maps. Sanborn, Sanborn Maps was a company that Buffett made. Um, uh, he wrote about it in, his, I think, his 1962 uh, shareholder letter. Um, he talked a lot, a lot about that company. I looked at um, the Sunbeam investment by Michael Price. I looked at the 1994 um, investment by, uh, by John Rogers in uh, Safety Clean, which now became um, Clean Harbors. Um, Carl Icahn's um, Tappan Company that he invested, and also Rich Rainwater. I mean, you know, the Crescent REIT that he did and also Mesa. So there was a whole bunch of kind of companies. Um, there were dozens of companies in situations like this that I basically tried to learn from. And the main idea for the research project was to come up with questions that these investors might have asked themselves at the time of making those investments. You know, I try to figure out what was the economy like? What were, what were interest rates? Um, you know, what were the news, financial news of, of that time, of that period? And I basically came up with about, you know, um, 200 questions in total that these investors might have asked um, when they were making these investments. And I wanted to have a checklist so that I could use myself. Okay, well, just go through this checklist and then you can make good investments. But the list was too long. You know, it was like, you know, 200 plus, plus, plus questions. But I noticed that those questions fell into five different buckets, business, price, value, catalyst, and margin safety. And that's how I, um, I uh, came up with, uh, with the five keys of value investing. Very cool. All right. So let, here we go. Let's, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, the abridged version, um, you know, what, can you walk me through what for you were, are the five keys uh, to value investing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, uh, so let me summarize um, uh, the, the five keys. Um, uh, so basically um, the, the, the list of questions um, could be summarized into these five areas. So the, the first question is, you know, is this a good business? And what I noticed that a lot of um, different managers our investors would look, would um, would would define good business differently, right? So you know, uh, so but that's the first question: What is a good business? The second question is: uh, uh, What is why is the market offering me this price? You know, you know, is the is the industry out of favor? Is it a turnaround? Is it a bad company? Is a company losing market share? Whatever the case may be, but I need to understand. Why is the market offering me this good price? Why is it selling me this business? The third question is, what is a company worth in a normalized kind of you know, circumstance? If those things that I believe were to go away, what is it worth? You know, if the stock's trading at $10, you know, is it worth $30 or is it worth like $15 or, or $50? So I need to really figure out what the company's worth. The fourth question is, what's going to catalyze that company from $10 to $30? Are they breaking up to two different pieces? Are they launching a new product? Are they reducing their debt? Are they buying back a lot of shares? Are they gaining market share? Are they going to be raising pricing prices soon in their products to have a you know eighty percent market share that they're really you know going after um, the, the 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 last twenty percent of the share? So there could be a lot of different reasons what what could catalyze a company from let's say ten dollars to twenty dollars. But I need to understand what are the possibilities to get a twenty dollars. And lastly. Um, what is my margin of safety? You know, you know Ben Graham. You know, um, you know if if you know uh, if I buy a stock at ten 
and things go wrong, does it go to eight or does it go to two? Um, you know, I need to understand that dynamic because if, they, if I buy that 10 and, and I think this is worth 20, but if I'm wrong and the stock goes to two, it may not be a good investment. You know, I, you know maybe if I'm wrong, the stock goes to eight or nine and a half or something, that nature would be much more pleasing. So I need to figure out what's my margin of safety. Um, so it seems like for me, what I've noticed is that um, a lot of investors, they would, you know, they would lean one, they would lean more on one area than the other. Like, for example, you know, early on, Warren Buffett would focus on marginal safety when he was running his hedge fund, you know, before he, he began follow, follow, uh, focusing on uh, business quality when, when, you know, running Berkshire. He's all about business quality now before it was margin safety. Michael Price was more about catalyst driven. You know, sometimes he was a catalyst. He would go in and shake things up. Seth Klarman, margin safety, downside protection. You know, I mean, you know, he wrote a book about it called Margin Safety. You know, John Rogers and Marty Whitman, I noticed was, you know, they love good businesses at cheaply priced. So they like the business and the price. That was the thing that kind of got them really excited from what, I could, from what I could tell. But in addition to that, what I, the insight I think that often is lost on people was that they executed this strategy very, very well because the investment style fit their personalities. In other words, how they were wired. So, for example, so as much as I how as much as I think I'm how smart I am, I cannot be a day trader, or I, I cannot trade crypto. For example, for me, I need a business. I need cash flows. I need assets to analyze. And, and this was a lesson I learned very early on. I think that was a lesson that while doing this project, I learned is that. All of these styles fit the personalities of those managers that I was running. And that was the same thing I saw early in my career when I was at Fidelity as well. Absolutely. And, and I have to ask, you know, of the five keys, are these in, you know, just some random order or is it in the order that of importance for you? That is a great question. And that's that's the heart of it. So if you if you, you know, I kind of. Um, I kind of look at it as, um, you know, if you look at it, it helps you approach a situation. So for example, if you see a company that you think that, oh, this is kind of interesting, and you just kind of go through the five keys. Now, sometimes one key may be more important than another. For example, let's say it's a turnaround. You know, it's a the company has issues. It's, it's, it's going through a lot of stuff. There's new management coming in. They're trying to sell some assets. Maybe margin safety is most critical in that situation. If it's a Fortune 500 company, maybe it's a monopolistic kind of company uh, that's been around for 50 years, maybe margin safety is not as important as the quality of the business or what, it, what would catalyze this company to, 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 to reach fair value. So the five keys really allows you to, how do I approach a situation and how I try to figure out which is most important at that time. One of the things I learned as well is that you cannot overanalyze everything. You know, there's usually one or two key, key things that's going to really get the stock price going um, uh, to make money on the stock price. You know, it's usually one or two things. And, and what you want to do quickly, you want to figure out what are the one or two things that's most critical to getting the stock price up. And typically it's one of those five things that you should focus on. It may be a great company. It may be great balance sheet, good balance sheet, but there's no catalyst. So it's probably going to be dead money for a while. Or it could be a not so great business, but you know this—they're selling below net cash, 
and they, they, they're going to sell assets. So great catalyst, high margin safety. You know, it's kind of like the whole cigar butt uh, kind of investing that the Ben Graham, you know, talked about in Lizzie's book, uh, Intelligent Investor. So again, the, you know, it depends. It allows you to assess the situation and you determine what's most important. Um, and I think over time with experience, you'll get a you get a feel in terms of where you want to specialize. You may want to specialize quality business. You may want to specialize catalytic opportunities, or maybe you want to specialize just buying companies with high degree of margin safety. So who would you say this book was written for? And, I, and the reason I want to ask this question is because I feel that, you know, especially in the last two years, you know, there's been a lot of new, uh, new people to the market to, to investing. And it's been a lot of, you know, maybe not so much thinking about what your strategy is or, you know, maybe just kind of following some trends or maybe, I mean, in some, in some cases, just throwing a dart, right. <laughs> um, but <laughs> throwing a dart, winning is throwing a dart, losing too. Right, you know? exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, so for, from your perspective, and, and this, it's not like this was that you wrote this book yesterday, this was written a while ago, you know, who was it written for? And would you say it's still written for that same audience? Oh, that's a great question. So, so the five keys was basically written for business buyers of public companies. Now, I have to stress business buyers. I'm not saying stock pickers, business buyers. It's really for the active owner where, where you know, of businesses where either you're a novice or professional. So it's really about how do I understand and analyze a business? How do I buy a piece of business um, that just happens to be trading publicly? Um, it's not so much a stock picking book as opposed to um, uh, a, a deep fundamental value investing book. So in, in, uh, having said that, it's not really a step-by-step, -step, but it's but perhaps more of a way to, to approach companies, um, as I mentioned before. Um, basically, when it, because when I was writing the book, I wanted a practical framework that could basically withstand the test of time. You know, there's only one edition. Um, and you look, know, as you mentioned, it, you know, it's been around for over 20 years now and it's been published in you know, five languages. So it's, it's doing pretty well. But the key was really to make it practical and hopefully it could stay, stand the test of time. Very cool. All right. So again, book is available wherever books are sold. So yeah, yeah I have a, a copy right here. <laughs> oh, there you go. Nice. There All go. right. Nice. I, 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 I got to get my copy. Exactly. Um, so my next question is: you you brought up um, working with Michael Price um, that you were you were uh, you were a protege of his, you know. So, uh, but by the way, rest in peace. You know, yes. I, I, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, but during your time working with this legendary investor, you know, what were what were some of the key lessons that you remembered from him? Yes. No. He's um, you know uh, he was a, a great human being, and and he um, look he. You know, he mentored a lot of people like myself uh, when he didn't really have to. You know, even when he went to semi-retirement, we would meet in his office um, when I had questions about companies I was looking at or, or I had questions. And he would always, uh, um, you know, um, you know, take time. I think the the last thing he did was, um, you know, having my my daughter, uh, 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 you know, uh, shadow him uh, in, in some of his, uh, um, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, professionals in his office uh, before he passed away. This was maybe a year before uh, he passed away. So, um, you know, it was, he, you know, the investment world has definitely uh, lost, a, a, you know, another legend. Uh, but, but you know, working with Michael was basically, um, how can I say, it? was was basically um, walking, uh, uh, you know, into a research boot camp. 
uh, with new uh, daily lessons every day. Um, but, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, you asked about lessons, you know, I think a couple lessons, you know, come to mind. I think, you know, I think the hardest part there was, was very, you know, working there was really, was really about remembering some of the minute details on every company you covered, you know, like, you know, how many shares of the CEO, you know, how many shares of CEO owns, you know, you know, you know, what, you know, has that changed the past year, you know, or, or, you know, uh, when was the last time, you know, the company presented to the street, you know, so, you know, every little detail, you know, um, he expects you to have down top of your head um, and know the companies inside and out. But I think the overarching lesson was, the, was the, what we learned is that to basically do the work that others might overlook or basically wouldn't, don't want to do. You know, he would often say, you know, if you do original work, go through the stuff that no one else would be willing to do, you basically be ahead of the game. And I truly, truly believe that, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, um, work that, you know, that people overlook or, or, or it's too more mundane for them to do. And a lot of times that's when you find that you get an edge or you get an insight that a lot of people may overlook. So I think that was the overarching lesson is really about, um, you know, do the work that other people might overlook or not want to do. Um, another lesson, which is kind of funny, is that, you know, it's really to, uh, you know, he uh, taught me how to read the Wall Street Journal. You know, I remember, um, you know, him waved me over his desk um, I think it was like maybe the first week I was there. And he told me, you know, they came over here, let me teach you how to read the Wall Street Journal. And I thought to myself, wait a sec, I, you know, I did graduate high school, I know how to read, you know. Uh, but, but, you know, but then he began to speak. You know, um, he asked me about, you know, where was the change happening in the companies that you're reading? Um, you know, where was the craziness? You know, where was the craziness happening? And that really started me when I look at and read different periodicals and financial rags, I start to think about where, where's the change happening? Where's the craziness? You know, I remember, you know, I remember during the pandemic reading about companies paying other companies to take barrels of oil, you know, off their hands. You know, I don't know if you remember the, you know, a couple of years ago, not today, they can't, you know, they can't get enough of, of oil. So it, it's things like this where you say, you know, this, this is crazy. Um, um, and that could, that might be an opportunity. And lastly, another lesson I would uh, would also mention is that um, you know you know he he would say that you know activism activism is not a tool. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not a strategy; it's, it's a tool. You know, um, don't go out seeking out low quality companies that need help. You know, basically seek out good companies on their way to being great, and you know engage if you must. But I think oftentimes, even today, you see a lot of these, you know, activist strategies. And I say to myself, you know, it should be a tool and not really something that you go out looking to do. It should be something that you buy a good company, a good piece of asset. And, you know, maybe something went awry or maybe something had changed. And you should be willing to, as an owner of the business, to be able to be a little bit more engaged or give advice to management. Um, and I think that's probably the best way to go about it. And I think that's a way to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, um, to, to pursue it. And I was very fortunate to have been involved with uh, several kind of restructurings um, when I was there from, you know, made, the sale of Maytag to Thermal Electron, so on and so forth. But again, these were good companies that we invested in. Um, and uh, and over time, we had to become more engaged. But I think those are the lessons that I learned. So Dennis, thank, thank you for that. that. That's incredible insight. I'm 
definitely going to be really listening to this part of the, I mean, I'm going to listen, I'll re-listen all the whole thing, of course, but definitely probably going to play back this part for sure a few times. Cause that's, there's some great lessons there. Um, so now let's, let's catch us up to today. You know, you're the founder of Ocean Park Investments, but before we get into the fund strategy and whatnot, you know, what, what, what are some of the areas of opportunity that you're seeing right now? Yeah, look, I mean, Robert, I mean, you, you mentioned microstock. I think you're going the right direction because, you know, you know, in today's market, you know, um, you know, we're trying to seek, you know, in the Omaha strategy, you know, you know, doubles and triples in the coming years. And I think that we're looking at a lot of opportunities in today's market, which, you know, needless to say, there's a lot of companies out there that are cheaply priced and that that could 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 be could be home runs. But you're right. So never I thought I would be in a small mid cap podcast, you know, because I kind of focus on these big mid cap companies. And and and, uh, and Michael did actually invest in smaller mid cap companies as well. Um, but you know, the reason why this is interesting time for me, why I really wanted to talk to you and some, you know, in your audience, obviously, is because some of these mid and large cap companies they have fallen over the past several months. Uh, to about you know uh, to small cap or or, or semi mid cap kind of uh, capitalization capitalization levels. Um, some companies never do what I thought would be would be in those kind of levels. So basically, as in terms of opportunities, what we're seeing today, we're seeing a lot of great great opportunities. Um, there's a lot of great companies that have just been fallen. Um, uh, that's been been basically uh, baby been thrown out with, uh, with the bathwater, so to speak. So because we specialize in industrial related companies, uh, these are companies with hard assets and cash flow. So we're seeing a lot of things in the you know the electric the electrification of everything. Um, you know we're we're seeing a lot of opportunities logistics, um, energy energy transition companies. We're seeing a lot of things in um, you know. Uh, you know, uh, changes in, in energy storage and transmission, precision uh, agriculture, um, and, you know, zero carbon kind of materials. I think that's go it's going to be big. Um, so there's a lot of great companies that have done extremely, that have done it well, uh, gaining a lot of market share. Um, but, you know, the market has kind of thrown them out and um, they're at uh, small, mid micro cap levels. And so we're very, very, very excited um, for, for this opportunity. This is the time I think that um, uh, people should be uh, putting capital to work. All right. So let's learn about one potential way they could do that. You know, like like we've been talking about this whole time, you run Ocean Park Investments. So tell us a little bit about the, the Ocean Park uh, Omaha Dislocation Fund. Um, it, it's, it sounds different uh, <laughs> than maybe some of the other uh, fun names out there. Um, but what, what would you say makes it different? Yeah. So, so, you know, you know, many people are not familiar with a dislocation approach, um, but it's a critical, critical part of being a good long-term investor. Um, so Omaha is a dislocation fund because it has what we call a, um, a 1030 gauge. We only release capital when the market is down at least 10% and the shares that we're looking at is down at least 30%. That's a dislocation. So that's a way of, of quantified dislocation. So if the market's going straight up and things of that sort, you know, that is not the environment for Omaha. Um, so basically the reason is because these high volatile environments of panics, uncertainties, present unbelievable opportunities. Um, you know, as equ equity dispersions widen, um, uh, market dislocations rise, this creates a very 
attractive risk reward profiles for certain companies. We are, and I will likely, and you know, we we likely will get deeper into this, but we are in this type of environment right now. Um, Omaha dislocation continues uh, um, uh, to be more of a opportunistic company, and it combines our core competence as a firm, as you know, as a, as sector specialists with speed of capital. And speed of capital is a powerful tool coupled with demonstrated, um, demonstrated knowledge of a specific industry or specific company. Omaha dislocation is basically, you know, it's a opportunistic drawdown kind of investment uh, fund uh, waiting for these opportunities to, to arise. Uh, and that's what we do at the core. We wait for the opportunity. Um, and I think that's what kind of um, uh, differentiates us from other, uh, from other uh, strategies when it comes to um, um, these opportunistic uh, situations. Absolutely. So, I mean, in times of not dislocation, do you have other strategies that you can then, you know, put some capital to work um, so that you're not, you know, because these don't happen all the time, right? Um, You know, between the flash crash and, you know, the V recovery from March 2020. um, Now we're kind of in like the slow burn yeah, situation right now, you know, I mean, okay, that's kind of two events in the last three years, but still, it do- usually doesn't happen that often. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. So, uh, so is that, is that, do, do you have a strategy that is for those non times like this? Like, I, I think, I think I saw on your website, there's what's called the absolute return. Strategy. Yes, 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 absolutely. So yeah, it's interesting because, you know, when you're running absolute return strategy, you know, you're, you're, you're long and short and, you know, shorting companies often get a bad name, you know, and I guess for good reason, you know, but, but, you know, Warren Buffett used to go around shorting companies when he was running his early partnership. I think a lot of people don't, don't really know that, uh, you know, he, he basically, he did not want to be tied to the market's ups and downs. So he would kind of, you know, go short some companies. Um, now he has private investments that that does that. But basically, um, so Ocean Park Apps Return, um, basically what we do, we try to strive for three objectives. Number one, to compound capital, you know, and a risk adjusted returns. Um, the second is really you know, not to be correlated with the market for bad, you know, better or worse. You know, the market's up, we may be flat and the market's down, hopefully we make some money. Um, and, and, and thirdly, is really about downside protection, really pres- preserving capital. Um, you know, it's interesting because during times of unusually challenging environment, what we look to do in terms of downside protection is at a minimum, we want to match the market or do a little bit better. But in normal environments, we really want to protect capital um, uh, in an unusual environment, maybe keep up with the market or do a little bit better. But that is what the goal is for, for absolute return. Compound capital, not correlated to the market, and also downside protection. And that's the that's what we that's the strategy we use most of the time on as we're waiting for other opportunities to arise. Absolutely. I mean, look, you got, you have to, I think in, in this day and age when you're running your, I mean, especially if it's not just going to be micro cap focused, you kind of have to have, you have to be nimble in some ways. I mean, I, yes. I can only, I, I, I support this thesis in the sense that, uh, you know, in looking at some uh, recent investor letters, you know, uh, quite a few of these guys got hit hard. Yeah. Real bad. Um, yeah. especially the ones that are a bit more concentrated. Yeah. Will they end up being probably very successful in the long run? Most right. likely, but yeah. but definitely in the short term. It's it's just they it's I mean it's it's sad, it's brutal. Yeah. It's but, tough. Yeah. 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 But yeah, no, I think I think I think you're right. I think being nimble and being having a holistic approach of, of the market cycles 
and not being, um, uh, not think things are go on a linear fashion, but it's more cyclical um, is very, very important. Um, and, and that's what, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, Oak Tree and a lot of other firms like that always talks about it's about the cycles of the market. 100%. All right. So I want to ask you a question that, um, you know, I ask everybody on here, but uh, what would you say? And, and look, it might, it might be from some of these experiences with working with these legendary investors, but what would you say was an investing experience? You don't have to name the name of the company, but what was an experience that really, you know, either proved out your thesis or really helped shape you to be the type of investor that you knew that's, that's the type of investor I want to be. Uh, the uh, an investment I did, yes, I would say, I would say, um, investing in a in, in Maytag. So um, when I was working with Michael, we had um, had a position in Maytag, and the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning it is because it was a long time ago, and we don't own any shares of Maytag because it's no longer a public share company in it by itself. But um, we had uh, we had taken a position, the company was doing certain things that was not uh, to our liking. It was a new CEO. We thought that he would make certain certain changes. They, were, they had some raw material issues that we thought that he, uh, the procurement wasn't where it should be. Um, and uh, we, um, I, myself and my colleague, um, uh, flew to, uh, to um, uh, Iowa, and it was my first time in Iowa and, uh, and you know, the sort of cornfields and things of that nature. And I remember um, uh, the, the, the company CEO walking me through a plant and um, he, he didn't realize that I was the one who was making the decisions in terms of, um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the company and things of that sort. Um, and, uh, but when we got to the boardroom, I was really peppering him with, with really uh, interesting questions. And then I think at that point, he realized that I knew the company as much as he did um, or as close as he did. And uh, long story short, uh, he and uh, Maytag was actually sold uh, to Electrolux. And, and, and an interesting note, which this is the first time I'm sharing this, is that um, Carl Icahn did an investment call in, in Tappan Company. This is probably in the 19... And this is probably in the 80s, early 80s, late, late 70s. And that was a company I researched when I was writing my book. He sold that company to Electrolux. And I remember what he did. And I remember the kind of things he did. This is when I was in business school, kind of writing the book. I was, you know, as I mentioned before, I was looking at all these kind of situations. So here I am, it, it, almost in the same kind of situation where um, I'm about to sell, you know, uh, encourage the company to be sold to uh, to 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 the Electrolux, which which was still around. So anyway, so that, I thought that was a that was an interesting um, um, that was interesting kind of full 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 go around. So anyway, so that was that was something. And the reason why um, it was a, it was an important um, investment is is not so much, you know, uh, it was sold and you know it was profitable, but it, it came full circle, you know, it 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 it. When I was researching these type of investments, when I was in business school, and and these things were so far in the future, you know, will I ever be in that situation? Here I was, doing that, and all I was doing, I'm going to sell the same company that um, uh, uh, Carl did, uh, uh, you know, gosh, you know, you know, 30 years ago or something of that nature. But anyway, that was interesting. 
That's really, that's really cool story right there. All right. So we're, we're right about there. Um, to close this out, what advice do you have for folks listening in here? Um, I mean, you've kind of given a, a little bit, quite a bit of advice already, you know, not just having to do with investing, but also life as an investor. But, you know, wh- what would you say for those that are listening to this saying, all right, maybe I want to be a value investor. Maybe I want to understand this better. Other than reading your book, you know, what are, and, and, and some other books and studying from some of the greats, but what, what can they do to be the best possible value investor or investor that they can be in a short a period of time? I would say three things very quickly. Number one, you have to find an approach that fit your personality and your temperament. I cannot stress that enough. You know, don't try to be like George Soros or someone that had that, that you did just, you just don't, it just doesn't fit your personality. And part of that is really understand who they are, you know, as, as a person, you know, what do they like to do? Are they a risk taker? How did they grow up? And you need to find someone that resonates with your background and your temperament and your values. Again, there's a lot of ways to make money. So I think that will be the most important thing. And that will be also be the second thing is the same is, is the first thing, which is you got to have the temperament match your skill set. The other thing is the second thing I would say is um, is really to to really study and, and, and as much as you can about people who have done what you would like to do um, uh, before, and particularly in the area and the approach that you that kind of fits your personality. There's a lot of information out there. Um, you have to be a voracious reader and consumer of, of information, and you have to basically love what you do. And if you think that this is work, then it's probably not cut out for you. But if you say to yourself, you know, you know, I was joking. I said, you know, what do golfers do? Professional golfers do when they retire? They play golf, you know. So it, it's similarly. So um, you know, uh, as an investor, you know, you'd want to do this, you know, for free. You you know, what are you going to do after you, when you retire from investing? You probably want to invest. So it needs to be that kind of natural um, kind of uh, 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 you know attachment towards the industry. You know, Buffett always say always says, you know, you want he skips to work. I skip to work every day. You know, I wake up early, sometimes three, four in the morning, just reading um, something on a company or reading 10K or 10Q or something that, you know, I remembered reading about some other company. I want to find out in the footnotes if that's the case. So it, it's, it's all fun for me. And that's, and that's very, very important. And lastly, the other thing about it, I would say, is really surround yourself with very solid, solid people. Uh, people you could trust, very honorable people, people with high values. And I think that if you have those three things, you'll be, you'll be on your way. Absolutely. Listen, that's why I got into media. Cause if, you know, when I retire, I'm just going to keep talking to people. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> that's a good one. Yep. <laughs> so, 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 so Dennis with that, you know, where can our audience go and find more information on you, uh, follow you on social media as well as go uh, find more information on ocean park investments. Well, I would say I'm not, I'm not huge on social media, but LinkedIn, uh, please, you know, we have a uh, ocean park has a LinkedIn page. You can follow us there and, uh, and we'd love to, uh, uh, have you as, as a follower and um, perhaps uh, we could connect with some of your uh, viewers. Very cool. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next update. Great. Thanks so much, Robert. Really appreciate it. Thank you thank so you. much. Okay.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.